Listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. What an amazing promise that is wrapped up in that understanding that God has never and will never fail us. And this morning, as we open up God's Word together, we're going to be reminded of the way in which God is, is just waiting for us and how we are waiting for Him. Before we get into God's Word, why don't we just start by praising Him for this great truth. Father, we, we thank You that You have never failed us, and we know confidently that You never will. And so, Lord, as we look forward to that day when we will get to be with You forever, keep us. Keep us in that truth that day after day we would be reminded that You are faithful and You've called us to be faithful. Thank you for the promises that you've given us through your word, and may we open it up this morning and be encouraged as we look forward to that day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time here in the room, or if you've joined us online, we've been in a series called The Signal of the Savior, considering this time between Jesus' first arrival at the beginning of the New Testament, what we call Christmas, and his second coming. It's this period between Jesus being here in the flesh and the moment when Jesus will come and take us to be where he is. And so we're going to continue in this series looking at this in-between period. And if you want to ground yourself in your Bible, then you can open up to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start there this morning, and then we're going to be looking also in Matthew chapter 25. And so you can mark your place there in Matthew, and then we're going to go back and start in Ephesians. The New Testament uses several different illustrations to describe the relationship between Jesus and his followers, all those of us who believe in him as their Lord and Savior. Collectively, all believers are considered to be the church. It's not just me and you who are gathered in this local con congregation, in this local church in Memphis Christian Church, but we join with believers all around the world as we are considered to be the church. And the Bible uses several different illustrations to help us understand who the church is and how the church relates to Jesus Christ. One of those illustrations is the church is the body of Christ, with Jesus being the head of the body. The church is described as the family of God. We are the sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And the church is described as the building of God. We are living stones that are being added to the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ and built up into the house of God. But one of the clearest and most beautiful illustrations I think the New Testament gives us for the church is that the church is the bride of Christ, that we are the bride of Christ. And here in Ephesians 5, Paul makes a direct connection between a husband and wife, what we understand as marriage, and Jesus and the church. And so he writes beginning in verse 25, he says, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
Now, we often point to Ephesians 5 as this, this picture of how husbands are to love their wives and how wives are to submit to their husbands and how we are to relate to others around the world. But where I want us to zone in on this morning is this picture that Paul gives us as the church is the bride. He, he gives us this picture that Jesus is the groom and we are his bride. Jesus is the groom and we are his bride. And Ephesians isn't the only place where we see this. Revelation 19 describes the marriage of the Lamb, who is Jesus, and his ready bride, the church. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus responds to those who are critical of his disciples not fasting and mourning by saying, why would they fast and mourn when the bridegroom, when the groom is with them? It's a time of celebration when he's with them, and, and there's going to be a time where they will fast and where they will mourn, but right now the groom is with them, and it's a joyous time, so why would they fast and mourn? And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the believers in Corinth that he had betrothed them to one husband who is Christ. Now, these are just a few examples, but we see this all throughout the New Testament as the church being the bride of our groom who is Christ. And so in keeping with this illustration, we can say that this series has been all about the anticipation of the day when the groom, Jesus, will return for his bride, the church, and we will be with him forever. But we have been looking at this reality that we currently are living in this in-between Jesus' first arrival and his second coming. Essentially, we're living in the period of time between the marriage proposal and the wedding celebration. That's what we call the engagement period. And what I hope that we'll do this morning is answer the question that all of us ask at some point in time in our faith is, why is this engagement taking so long? Why are we still in the middle of this period of time. And because we are, the second question we'll answer is, what should we be doing while we're in the middle of this period? While this period continues to go on day after day. Now, every engagement begins with a proposal, an invitation generally offered by a man to a woman asking her to be his wife. They've courted, they've dated for a while, maybe talked about their desire to commit to one another and spend their lives together. And so he finally decides that it's time to make a firm commitment and ask her to marry him. Now, some proposals are more romantic than others. Some guys just plan this, this major elaborate thing and they, they go out and they, they make it really special. My proposal was not that. Um, I, I shared with you in my blog that I would share how I proposed to Amanda. And I, I'm, I'm embarrassed about it today, but we, we laugh about it because I'm just not that guy. Like, I just don't have that ability to be romantic. And so uh, we, were in, we were in college, and uh, I had planned this out. I had called her dad and asked uh, for his permission to, to ask his daughter to marry me. And uh, we were going out for Valentine's Day. Now, it wasn't Valentine's Day because I don't go out on Valentine's Day because it's too busy. It was like two days before Valentine's Day. And I had bought this ring, this very cheap ring, because I was a part-time college student, full-time college, part-time employee. And uh, we were going to what we considered to be the height of luxury for college students. And that was Red Lobster. It was like the special place for us where we would spend our, our date nights together. And so we, we go to Red Lobster, 
We sit down at, at, at our table and we're ordering and the manager had to keep coming over and adjusting the thermostat above our heads because they were having some heating issues. And by the end of the night, he offered us a free dessert because he had been so disruptive to our meal. I'm like, that's really cool. We get a free dessert out of this. Now, I did not ask Amanda to marry me at the table. If I had, I'm sure he would have comped our meal and I would have saved $30. But we waited, I waited until we got outside. It was February, 16 years ago next month. It was February and it was freezing cold. And I'm like, I can't get down on my knee in this weather. We've got, so we, we got into her, her little two-door white Cavalier. I had two to-go containers in my hand. She got in the driver's side because it was her car and I got in the passenger side, and I handed her the to-go containers because I needed my hands free to, for this next part. So, so I handed her the to-go containers, and I reached into my pocket, and I pulled out the ring, and I just said, will you marry me? And of course, you know, she said yes. And we, we had planned on going to the movies, uh, which I was really excited about, uh, but she wanted to go home and, of course, talk to her parents and celebrate with them. So it was, it was really special for us. It was my own way of just, just doing things. But that was my proposal to Amanda. And I know, I know that some guys go all out and it's just, it's just not part of our story. Um, but we laugh about it today just because of how all of it kind of came to be. Now, every proposal looks kind of like that, right? The guy goes out and he buys the ring and he makes the plans and they go to this special place and he, he gets down on one knee and he says, will you marry me? And the next word out of her mouth will determine whether he's happy for the rest of the night or whether he's depressed for an indeterminate period of time, right? Because so we wait for that, that answer to come, whether it's going to be a yes or no. And once it does, then the engagement begins, Engagement between Christ and his church is no different. During Jesus' first arrival, he proposed to us. He proposed to you and me. He may not have gotten down on one knee and said, will you marry me? But over and over again, especially in John's gospel, he offers the same invitation. John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And John 14.6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Whoever comes to me has life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The invitation is to believe in him to believe that he died and rose again, to accept the free gift of eternal life that was purchased by his blood. This is the proposal. And he may not have gotten down on one knee, but he did something infinitely more romantic than that. He laid down his life, Paul says. He went to the cross. He gave himself up for his bride in order to demonstrate the depth of his love for you and me and the seriousness of the invitation, the seriousness of the proposal, a proposal that is still being offered to those today who have not yet accepted it. And this proposal demands a response. It demands a yes or no answer. And you and I are the ones who must respond. When a man gets down on one knee and pops the question, he has already decided in his mind that he wants to marry this woman, at least he should have. 
He doesn't ask her to marry him hoping for a no. Like I didn't, I didn't ask Amanda to marry me hoping that she would say no. I, I desired, I wanted to commit my life to her and to spend the rest of my life with her. My answer was already yes. And I just wanted her to say the same thing. In the same way, Jesus' act of going to the cross, of laying down his life, is the clearest indicator that he already desires to have relationship with you and me, that he already wants us. It's why we, we caution here in this church against that language of, of asking Jesus into our hearts. We're not asking him anything. He's the one who asked us. He already said, I want you to, to, to answer this question, to say yes. It's Jesus who made up his mind that he wants relationship, and so now we respond with our answer, and he gives us his promise. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. I'll never drive away. His proposal signifies his acceptance of you and his deepest desire that you will say yes. And from the moment that you do, when you say yes, the engagement period begins and you are spoken for. You are his. You belong to him, last night we celebrated with Georgia Willinger who came and, and gave her life to Christ in baptism. And at that moment, she's spoken for. She belongs to him. She said yes, and now she enters into this engagement period. Now, when I proposed to Amanda that 16 years ago, I was ready to marry her right then. I didn't want, nor did I need, a long engagement period. If it were up to me, we would have just gone somewhere the next day, said I do, and, and started our lives together. And her dad would have been okay with that. He was willing to pay for us to go and elope because he was so distraught about having to give his daughter away and walk her down the aisle. But that, that's how I, I wanted it to be. I didn't want this long engagement period, and yet, as it so often is, she had other plans. She had in her mind what she wanted her wedding day to look like before my face was even on the head of that groom, right? She knew what she wanted her wedding to look like, and that was going to take some time. That was going to, she had to make the arrangements, the plans that she had in mind for what she wanted to do. Our engagement was 15 months long, and it was the longest 15 months of my life. It felt like an eternity. Now, some might argue that God himself likes long engagements. After all, Jesus' first arrival and proposal came 2,000 years ago, and we are still waiting for the wedding day. We're still waiting for him to return and to be with him forever. And certainly, every single day that passes, we are a day closer than we were the day before. And yet, day after day, year after year, century after century, we wait. Not only do we wait, we don't even know what the wedding day is. It's a date that's been set by the Father, not even known by the Son. We don't know when this will take place. Peter spoke of this unknown waiting period when he writes in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And the world often asks us this question. You say, Jesus is coming back, but where is he? 
Everything continues the way that it always has. You keep talking about the return of your Savior, and yet he's not here. And in verse 8, Peter responds to that question. He says, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And wrapped up within Peter's words here, and and looking back at what Paul tells us there in Ephesians 5, we can see several reasons for why this engagement period seems to be taking so long in our eyes. And the first is that time is simply different for God. God sees time differently. Now, I know that that Peter is likely being figurative here, but consider what he's saying. That if a thousand years are like a day to God, then in God's eyes, it's only been a couple days since Jesus even came the first time. The point is that God doesn't look at time in the same way that we do. We see it from a finite perspective. If I've only been alive for these 36 years, then 2,000 years seems like forever to me. But if you are an infinite number of years old, then a couple thousand years is like nothing. I often say that every generation has believed themselves to be the generation who will see Jesus' return. We all believe that. But God could allow another 5,000 years to pass, and, and overall it would only seem like a week to him. It also seems especially long to us because of the anticipation of what you and I are waiting for. That 16-month engagement for me seemed like forever because of the expectation of what was to come, because I was so ready, I was so looking forward to it. If you tell a five-year-old that you're going to Disney World in two weeks, those 14 days are going to feel like an eternity, because there's something great coming and now he has to wait for it. In my my engagement, there was something great coming and I had to wait for it. And for those of us who have accepted this proposal, we are waiting for the greatest day of our lives. Nothing compares. Not your wedding day, not the births of your children, not the greatest event you have ever been to. This day will be the greatest day of our lives by an infinite amount. And so, of course, it's going to feel like it's taking forever when we're all looking forward to this, especially when we're in the middle of some of the most difficult times, when life throws its worst at us and we desperately long for something better. There are just those days when we're in the middle of the storms of life and we wake up and say, Jesus, I just want to see you today. I just want you to return and make this better. Right? It's in those moments where the days seem to drag on and we wonder, how long is this going to take? But I don't want us to miss the point of what Peter is really driving at. It may seem like it's taking a long time, but God is not slow in keeping his promise. Rather, God is patient. And as impatient as I can be waiting, it's a good thing that God has waited because his waiting signifies his desire to see you repent and accept the proposal that was offered through his son. Indeed, it is for your good and mine that God has waited this long. Because what if he returned before you accepted the invitation? 
What if Christ came back for his bride when I was a junior in high school and I had not yet surrendered my life to Christ in baptism? What if he had come before you did that? Then we'd all be lost forever. We'd be lost for all eternity. And so God's patience meant my salvation. His patience means your salvation if you've accepted it. But what does that mean for those who haven't said yes? It means that even now you still can, that God is still patient. He doesn't want you to perish. And yet there is this urgency in not knowing the date. If God had given us the exact date, then we could just live whatever way we wanted until that moment and then said, I'll be yours. So while it could be another 5,000 years before Jesus returns, it could also be before I finish this sermon. It could be. He's not told us when, and we know that his patience is still standing right now, but don't wait under the assumption that his patience is going to last forever. Because Peter continues in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. No one can predict it. It'll be unexpected and sudden, and if you've not said yes, then it will be too late. And so we thank God for his patience today while recognizing that eventually, eventually it's going to run out. Third, looking back at what Paul said in Ephesians 5, the engagement is ongoing because preparations are still being made. Like me, you've probably experienced all too well the work that goes into planning a wedding. Not the work that I had to do, but the work that Amanda had to do in planning her day. Us guys, we, we go to a store in the middle of a strip mall and we put on a suit that has been worn by a hundred other guys. But women, they, they go to the bridal store with their friends. They go through all these dresses. They spend hours there picking out the exact right one that just looks beautiful on them. They plan ahead for where they're going to have their, their hair done and who's going to do their makeup and how they are going to just make themselves as beautiful as they possibly can for their groom. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work. Preparations have to be made. In verse 26 there in Ephesians 5, Paul describes a similar scene with regard to the bride of Christ. He says that Jesus gave himself up for her in order to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word in order to present her to himself as a radiant church fully adorned, beautifully dressed. She's not quite ready. There's this sense that even while we have been made righteous by the blood of Christ, that there's still this ongoing purification of the church. She's being prepared for her groom, and he will not return one moment before she is fully prepared. Now, that doesn't mean that we are all called to be perfect before Christ returns. That will never happen. We will not be perfected until Christ returns. But there's this ongoing purification so that the bride of Christ may be presented to him without blemish or wrinkle or spot, and then he will return. And so for these reasons, the engagement continues on, driving us towards the day of the wedding celebration. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is what should we be doing in this time? How should we be living, not knowing when this day will come? And to answer this question, go ahead and turn over 
to Matthew chapter 5 if you marked there in your Bible. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus, he gives us this parable, this illustration that answers the question for us. Beginning in verse 1, he says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. We can consider them as bridesmaids, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Our bridegroom is a long time in coming. And they became drowsy and fell asleep. Jesus continues that when the time came for the arrival of the bridegroom, more time had passed than the five foolish bridesmaids had anticipated. They didn't have enough oil in their lamps to keep them lit, and so they had to run off and get more. The bridegroom arrived unexpectedly while they were still away, and the ones who had prepared well were able to enter into the wedding banquet with him, while those who hadn't prepared well were turned away. And the main idea is that while we wait for the return of our bridegroom, while we wait for Jesus, we are to prepare faithfully, understanding that he could return any time, and we don't want to be caught unaware. I was reminded of the disciples in Acts chapter 1. They had just witnessed Jesus ascend into heaven after his death and resurrection. He had told them that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven and he's hidden by a cloud and it says that they're staring up into the sky. Acts chapter 1 verse 10 says they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go. So the promise of Jesus' return isn't an invitation to stare into the sky and to wait for him to come back. Just like these disciples who I'm sure were hoping that he was going to be right back. The angels asked them, why are you just standing there? Didn't he give you something to do? Weren't you to go into Jerusalem and and be his witnesses? Why are you just standing there doing nothing? So the reality is that weddings don't happen on their own. A guest list has to be prepared. Invitations sent, ceremony planned, preparations made. And while you and I are waiting, there is work to be done. And a willingness to do the work signifies whether you are like the bridesmaids who were prepared for Jesus' return or whether you're like the ones who didn't have enough oil and who were cast away. Our preparation involves not only telling others about the wedding day and trying to bring as many with us as we can, but also our own personal growth in holiness and obedience to our Lord so that we can be presented to him without spot or wrinkle. And so if you claim to be a Christian but live like the world simply waiting with no spiritual fruit, then I would caution you that you may find yourself on that day not invited into the wedding banquet. Preparations have to be made. And if you truly love your groom, then shouldn't we desire to be as radiantly dressed for him as possible? To be as ready as we can be. Being spoken for means that we give ourselves to nothing or no one else while we are waiting and we prepare faithfully. 
we get ready for that day. Secondly, while we wait, we are to love fervently. First part of the engagement is really, really exciting. Like a newly engaged, soon-to-be bride who shows off her ring to everyone she encounters, a new believer comes out of the waters of baptism and just is on fire for their faith. Excited for God's rescue of them, ready to share all that God has done for him, interested and, and, and hungry for his word and to be in fellowship and relationship with him. And yet over time, over time that affection can seem to fade. We find ourselves sometimes overwhelmed by the preparations that have to be made. Change and, and growth are hard. It seems like there's so much work that has to be done, so much within our lives that needs to change. Growth is difficult. When we hit a wall or backslide or get frustrated, love seems to wane. It may start with sharing your faith less. Maybe that you stop reading God's love story to you through the word. It may be that you stop spending time with him in, in, in prayer and in, in fellowship with him or falling back into those things that he's rescued you from, those same habits and hang-ups that you thought were taken care of and yet they, they come back because your, your love has waned and perhaps you become bitter. I've seen Christians grow up in their faith and become bitter toward God or even bitter towards other people. Revelation 2, Jesus offered this warning to the church in Ephesus. It's the same church that Peter was writing to there in Ephesians 5. He says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary, and yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You've forgotten the love that you had at first, notice what Jesus says. The church in Ephesus seemed to be doing all the right things. Working hard, doing good deeds, persevering even through trials and hardships, and yet something was missing. What was missing? They forgot their groom. They forgot that they were spoken for. On the outside, it looked like they were preparing for the wedding celebration, but what good is a wedding if the bride no longer loves the groom? What's the point of going through this exercise if the bride has no affection for the one that she's marrying. That's what Jesus is saying. You've forgotten your first love. You've forsaken it. Come back to this and do all those things, but do them out of your love for me. And this is what we need to be cautious of, especially when we find ourselves in difficult seasons. If we aren't focusing our affections on the one who loved us so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us, then we might find ourselves slipping into some kind of emotional or physical or, or spiritual unfaithfulness. It can happen not simply in open rebellion to God, but more often in just forgetfulness. We get wrapped up in the things that we're doing and not the why of, of why we're doing them because of our love for Christ. We forget the love we once had, and all of a sudden, preparing for the wedding seems like an arduous chore instead of a joy. And so the invitation for us, for you and me who have said yes, is to let the anticipation of the wedding day and the love that we have for our bridegroom propel us forwards to that wonderful day. 
It should be the motivator for how we live, recognizing that Christ has already committed himself to us. And because you are spoken for, because you belong to him, it leads you to want to serve him out of your love for him and your desire to be with him. We prepare because we love the groom. That's why we do it. Because we love him and we want to serve him and we want to be as radiantly adorned for him as possible. Finally, in this engagement period, we are to wait expectantly, to wait forwardly, as Dave talked about early on. Amanda's favorite picture of me from our wedding was that moment, that moment when I was standing up here and I, and I was fixed at the end of the aisle and I was just waiting for the doors to open when we had doors back there. I was just waiting for the doors to open. See, we, we did that traditional thing where you don't get to see one another for the whole day. You don't get to talk to one another. I hadn't seen her dress. I had no idea what she looked like. It was like she was with me because she had left a schedule for me all day. <laughs> and I, I threw that schedule away just as I was getting to the golf course. But I was waiting, I was waiting to see her. I had not seen her all day. It was like five o'clock, six o'clock in the evening. And we had a great photographer. And wisely, as the doors opened, his lens was not fixed on her. There would be plenty of pictures of her. His lens was fixed on my face because he wanted to capture the moment that I first saw my bride. That moment that I had been anticipating the whole day. No, no, the whole 15 months had been building up to it. This moment that I would finally see my bride beautifully dressed, fully adorned, hair done, makeup done, just ready for me. That picture captured the most special moment of the day for me. The day when the doors opened and I finally saw her. I finally saw my bride. Colossians expresses the same idea in this way. He says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. We are preparing faithfully and loving fervently as we the bride are waiting for the moment when the door opens and we have been fully prepared and radiantly dressed for our groom, glowing and spotless and without blemish and ready to begin this marriage that will last forever. This, this time that we will get to be with him forever. And it's at that moment, for me it was at that moment, that all of the waiting was worth it. And it'll be at that moment that for us who have said yes to the invitation, all of our waiting will be worth it. We will not regret one day, one circumstance that we've had to go through to get to that day. It will all be worth it. This is the invitation. This is the invitation that is open to us who have already said yes. That we can live in the expectation of what is to come. Live in the joy of the wedding day as we wait for our groom. But for you who have not said yes, the invitation is that God's patience is his desire for you to be brought to him. Jesus has already proposed and he desires you to say yes. He wouldn't have gone to the cross if he didn't. 
And so God's patience can mean your salvation, but it won't last forever. You want this day to be a day of joy because the alternative is unbearable. And so the invitation for you who have not yet said yes is to respond, to enter into the engagement and to look forward to the celebration. Let's stand up and let's pray. Well, Father, we look forward to this day. We look forward to the day that our groom will return, that we will be presented to him without wrinkle, without blemish, radiant and glowing, ready to be with him forever. Lord, you've given us marriage as an illustration, a, a picture of that. We thank you for marriage because it's such a, a blessing. But Lord, it's only a foretaste of the celebration that's to come. So Father, as we anticipate that day, may we not forsake our first love. May we serve out of our desire for you and desire to be with you. And for those who have not yet said yes, Lord, draw them to yourself as only you can. May their hearts respond with a yes. We love you, Father. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is your invitation if you need to respond.